You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses, go to surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 49 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Monday, the 21st of August, 2017. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Asher King. Hello, everybody. Rue Hill. Hi, guys. And Kerry ann Krager. Hello. Do you guys realize that right as we're recording this, there's an eclipse going on? Right now, there isn't, but in four minutes, there will be. I love that's the sort of precision that our listeners have come to expect on the Surf Simply <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah, in, uh, in about four minutes again. We don't get the proper eclipse, though, because down, down here in Costa Rica, we are only going to get a 20% coverage. So I've heard a lot of very smart people say that they feel it's very important for everyone in their lifetime to witness an eclipse because the effect it has on you is very profound. Really? Yeah. And I don't know if you guys know, but you know, obviously we're all missing this one. But the next one is going to be in 2019 in July in South America, in Chile, I think, in Argentina. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be obviously July, so it's winter down there. So it might be quite cloudy. So the best one's going to be the one after that, which I think is Monday, December the 14th. 2020 that's actually from memory <laughs> still works um in argentina and chile again so i think i might try and get down for that one they're getting a double dose they're getting a clubs. double dose two years in a row did you not see the one in the uk when was it It was about 10 years ago wasn't it yeah i did we did a big paddle out off the headlands down in cornwall and loads of us sat out in a big circle in the water and it all went dark but it was cloudy so we didn't get to see any of the drama uh, okay. but it is it's amazing that even though you know what's going to happen just how profoundly it affects you on some kind of deep primeval level. I mean, it's something that really I think everyone should experience. I want to see it without clouds so I can, I can really witness it happening. So two of our guests, Gene and Craig, have traveled to almost all of them every single year. So they're in Oregon right now with friends and they have uh, years in advance planned as to where they're going to go. I wonder if the first time you see one, obviously it's amazing. Do you think if you keep seeing them, it keeps being amazing? Or if, you're, if you stand around and you're one of those people talking about how it was so much better last time? Well, I think if you're in different places, it would still keep it special and maybe a bit interesting. That's a pretty good excuse to go to places that you wouldn't otherwise go. Like I think Jean's mm-hmm. been to like the middle of China. Yeah. And yeah, she, she did it in Indonesia one time and... Yeah, it's some pretty far out places for uh, seeing an eclipse. That's pretty cool. I like the idea of being up in the Andes seeing one. Yeah, I think that's one of the coolest hobbies I've ever heard, Um, just chasing the eclipse around. If you look back over any big media events which have sort of reminded the human race how we all live on this little floating speck of dust going through space, it does tend to like bring everyone together. I know that, when was it, back in 1972, when the crew of the Apollo shuttle turned around and took the first photograph of Earth from space. No, that must have been way before that because it was 69 they landed on the moon. There was the blue marble photograph, was, I'm pretty sure it was 72. Anyway, well, we'll have to Google that, that and put it in the show notes, listeners. But the point is, a lot of people have said that that was the beginning of the environmental movement because it was the first time there was an impactful image that actually said, look, this is a planet that we're all on. And, and before that, people had kind of known it intellectually, but perhaps not realized it in quite the same way. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the famous pale blue dot photograph that was taken 1990. I'm looking at Harry now because I feel like you're going to correct me on the <laughs> date. Early 90s, when uh, I think it was the Cassini space telescope mm-hmm. turned around and took a photo of Earth. And it's just this little blue dot fo- floating in the ring of, of Saturn. And Carl Sagan wrote this beautiful kind of essay about how, you know, we're all... 
I'm starting to sound like a hippie. I really believe this stuff though, you know, we're all like one just on this little dot floating through space and kind of reminded us to be kind to each other and look after the planet and each other. I feel like, especially given the events of last week in the US, that might be quite a poignant time for us all to remember that we're all, uh, what is it, go back 6,000 years and every single person on the planet is a direct parent-child descendant of every person who was alive on the planet then. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. There you go. Fun fact. The other thing that's cool about the eclipse is that it's a total coincidence that the moon is the same size as the sun or appears to be the same size as the sun. Mm. And I heard someone say on another podcast, I can't remember, recently, that they thought one of the main reasons why aliens might choose to come to Earth is it's likely one of the only places where you can witness a total solar eclipse with a moon and a sun that are apparently the same size while standing on a planet. So it, it would be kind of cool if our only experience with aliens was that they rocked up, watched the eclipse, and they were like, cool. And we were like, aliens. And then they just kind of left. All right, see you later. See you later, guys. <laughs> yeah, we're not really that interested in talking to you. You don't seem that cool, to be honest. But yes, getting getting back and away from our, our, our eclipse and what's going on, we haven't done an, a regular podcast episode for quite a while. Um, we've been off air. We've been very busy with, with lots of little things. We had a, a, one of our little regular breaks and we were away. Myself and all the rest of the coaching team redid our lifeguard qualifications, which was a good giggle. I feel like we start almost every other episode with apologizing for not having done an episode in a while. Listeners, yeah. you just need to accept that sometimes these episodes w- will not come out for a while. And that's kind of <laughs> to keep you on your toes. We don't want to be predictable. I think this one set our personal record since the inception <laughs> of the podcast. 49 has been the longest in between episodes. Yeah, well, we, we did actually, we recorded an episode a while back and it just never quite made it through with everything else that was going on by the time I'd edited it it was very out of date um, and so it, it never got broadcast do like do you remember that one time when we were off air without having told everyone for September and October when we mm. all went away traveling and we'd meant to do one and like we got tons of emails from people have, have our regular listeners now given up emailing us yeah I think they've basically given up <laughs> they accept that we're 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 not that's so that punctual when it comes to podcasts. Our amount of show listens has gone up, but the amount of people who complain when we don't put out a show for a while has gone down. <laughs> Thank you. It's good that you know us, listeners. There we go. Um, but yeah, I had, a, I had a fun... My parents came over. I went over to the Caribbean coast for a couple of days. That was quite fun. What did you guys been up to? Well, uh, we've had a pretty interesting uh, season of surf here in Costa Rica. It's our south swell season, and typically we get a lot of swells from kind of the middle of the Pacific this time of year. Um, from where we are, it's about a 200 to 220 degree swell, which if you were to look at a map and was to were to pinpoint the Galapagos Islands, basically if you were to draw a straight line from the Galapagos to Costa Rica, that's the angle of swell we get, which in turn is usually quite shadowed by the islands. I mean, of course, waves refract around them, but it does a number on our swell. But this year, there's a big high pressure system sitting in the Central Pacific, which has pushed all of our storms uh, quite south which is a lot of description to basically mean we've got a lot of uninterrupted swell, which has been a lot of fun. Um, it's a really good direction for a wave I, I personally really like around the area. And uh, one of our other coaches, Harrison, I think trumps me in the li- liking to surf department. He's been, he's been rallying me to do some pretty early missions. Yeah, you guys have been getting up pretty early. I've been quite jealous. My, I, I broke my toe sometime in May and I pushed through as far as I could and it was just getting really painful every time I leant over on my toe side rail and so I stopped surfing 
And then we had this string of Southwell, 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 Southwell. And you and Harrison kept coming into the office early in the morning with your hair still wet, talking about how good the, the waves have been. Yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, it's been pretty epic missions. Uh, we've been hiking in a lot with headlamps to kind of more remote spots. And it's very nostalgic feeling of like going and surfing before class as a, as a Grom. And some of the waves I've scored this summer have been as good or better than I've had anywhere in the world puts a pretty big smile on my face that I can get waves like that around home. I know it's pretty special. So I like the way that you, I know the wave that you're talking about and I like the way that you just circumnavigated saying where it was, uh, keeping a little secret. Be, there's got to be secrets out there. I mean, it's honestly, if you're just to look at a map, you could find it pretty quickly, but I don't want to deprive anyone of that feeling of adventure for themselves. So I was out on a boat in Indonesia, as I was mentioning in the last episode, where, in fact, where I recorded the last episode, where I was speaking with Demir. And uh, I did my first attempts at toe surfing, which was so fun. But I, I've already written down the exact jet ski that we're going to buy, the thickness of the rope, like everything, all of the specs. And I was thinking about that same one wave as the specific point, you know, because there's the rock there. But I think you could just whip in behind the rock and backdoor that first section. It'd be pretty amazing. Yeah, this, uh, the last time I surfed it, actually, um, I've never felt so undergunned in my life. It was, <laughs> there were three people out. I was on a 6'4", a pretty chunky one. Um, Harrison was on maybe a mid-six board, and then the other guy was on maybe a seven-foot pintail, and we were all just significantly undergunned. How do you guys feel about doing some toe surfing? Carrie-Anne? Pretty scared. <laughs> I think if it was in a pretty safe space and you knew, you know, you don't have like sharp, jagged reef in front of you, like in a friendly wave, then yeah, it'd be pretty fun. I don't know how much friendly toe surfing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's that one wave in the middle of the bay in Gaza that would That'd work. be a pretty intro to like, surfing kind that's of wave. A pretty, That holds quite a big swell, but it's got a huge deep channel off to the side of it. Like You could comfortably play around and practice there, and you, you wouldn't get too caught out, especially if you went out at high tide. So yeah. a, couple of, a couple of the things that were really interesting, just toe surfing for the first time, was that you... You know, one thing that we spend a lot of time coaching people on here at Surf Simply is their ability to predict what waves are going to do and more specifically to predict where they need to be to catch a wave. So what a wave's going to do relative to where they're sitting. The biggest problem we have is that when a wave goes past and people haven't caught it, they turn immediately out to see, look at the horizon um, and they don't watch the wave. And we're always telling people, you know, turn around, watch the wave you didn't catch because how, like how well or badly you predicted that wave relative to what it ended up doing is is how you're going to get better at predicting future waves that come in so you build that skill over time and you just have now as, as experienced surfers you know we all have this innate sense of what a wave's going to do where it's it's pretty instinctive and that all almost goes back to zero when you start toe surfing you know we were whipping in from behind waves so you'd watch a wave roll under you and then you'd watch it roll in towards the reef and you'd be thinking okay you know that one's obviously gone and then uh, Ty, the guy that was kind of coaching me and driving the ski, would be like, all right, we're going on this one and kind of like buzz off. And suddenly you're going, you know, 25 miles an hour. And then you're coming in behind the wave that you'd completely written off. And I was so far behind the peak of the wave, you know, thinking there's no way I'm ever going to make this. This is going to close out in front of me. And I have to just go as fast as I can, even to stand a chance of getting out onto the face. Uh, but because you're going 25 miles an hour, you let go of the rope and suddenly you're just out on the shoulder, like way, way ahead of it. So the whole ability to 
to predict what the wave's going to do and know where to let go of the rope and, and just recalibrate that is, is really hard. It's like you start almost from zero again. So when it comes to toe surfing, what percentage of success do you think is the driver getting you in the right spot versus the skill of the guy behind the rope? Uh, well, I think that getting it in the right place has got much more to do with the driver. Mm-hmm. And then obviously once you let go of the rope, that's on you. So mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, I, I didn't do any driving, so I was just on the the rope end. Um, but like, I, I would, I definitely hacked the process of knowing where to let go of the rope because I had Ty telling me exactly where to do it. And I would have let go of the rope. I did way too early a few times, way too late a few times. And then it's amazing how how quick you lose speed once you let go of the rope. You Mm -hmm. feel like you're whisking along, you let go of the rope and your speed drops to almost nothing, almost immediately. And suddenly this wave where you felt like you were kind of going really fast, suddenly you kind of stall and lose all your speed. And, and, getting the board right up at the top of the wave so that you start to get some more down the line speed going, especially if you're trying to pull in like we were, is really, really hard. The classic mistake is you go right down to the bottom into like this big drawn out bottom turn, which you start at like, you know, 15 or 20 miles an hour. And then halfway through the bottom turn, the board slows right down and suddenly you're coming up the wave with like almost no speed because you just massively faded way too far. And then the whole thing would kind of barrel and it would just shut down and get disappeared over the reef. And, that happened to me about 10 times, I think. And I made like one or two of them. But uh, yeah, we were definitely dating a jet ski. Sounds like toe surfing is something you definitely want to learn in an area where you're not jockeying for waves. I don't think 10 waves would be very cool with a crowded lineup. No, we, we only towed on a couple of little reefs that he happened to know about where there was no one else mm-hmm. there. Um, but yeah, you wouldn't have wanted to go in and do it where there was a lot of people. Were those the biggest waves you've been in? Um, I don't know. Honestly, they didn't feel particularly big at the time. And then I was looking back at some of the photos and it was a lot bigger than it felt. Yeah, I the mean, photos it, were amazing. It didn't feel like, um, I didn't feel intimidated by the size of the waves on the back of the, when I was, when I was towing into them, I can, I can see how you could surf waves that are way beyond anything you'd paddle into with a ski pretty easily. Picked up a couple of new boards while you're in Bali as well, didn't you? couple of new boards yeah and, and lost a couple of boards as well oh. but yeah i got my jai burns bonza that's a lot of fun i'm pretty stoked with that one Absolutely you know what's funny beautiful. about that board is that when you're going down the line the fins just whistle a little bit they go sort of which i've got no idea what causes it but the first couple of waves i got i assumed i'd dropped in on someone so i was like turning around and looking behind me yeah my um my step up does that as well and it's i don't know it's a bit of an annoying sound you yeah. can get rid of it if you file the trailing edges of the fins why the trailing edges of the fins? That's just where the whistling comes from. Wow. Um, yeah, what, what normally causes the whistling is where you've got water flowing around the edge of the fin. The water's just coming straight off it, and it can cause the fin to just to start to vibrate. And if you sand it, then the, the fin tends not to vibrate quite as much. Very cool. Karen, what have you been up to? I was back in New York for a little while, and Tiffany Joe, one of our guests, was uh, who's on the LPGA tour, was playing in the Women's U.S. Open. She is one of the funniest people on Instagram. She is, and in real life, not just Instagram. <laughs> she is, uh, yeah, really great, and she uh, got us some tickets to come watch her play, which was pretty cool just to be there kind of up front and seeing it all happen, and it was really cool for me anyway just to see, like, the caddies working with them like on every little detail there's so much like math and calculation involved and but yeah it was really great to see her play and just a pretty cool thing to to be at 
Um, otherwise, I've been trying to train for a triathlon, which is not something I've done before. I only found that out this morning. I didn't know you were going to do that. That's insane. Oh, really? Yeah, well, it's just a, it's just like a baby triathlon, just a little sprint one. So, uh, how how long is the one that you're doing? I think it's, uh, I think it's, five hundred meter swim. I think it's something like eleven, twelve miles on a bike, and then uh, three miles running. Oh, okay. So just, yeah, it's just not. A, it's just, just a, a little. Yeah, I I would like to do a more serious one later, but um, from what I hear, the transitions are kind of the tricky part, going from the water to the bike and. And uh, so I want to get the hang of those because when I do one properly, I want to make sure it's done right. So um, I've just been using it as a way of kind of like staying in shape and um, it's something I've wanted to do for a while. So So can I ask you, what's the draw of doing something like a triathlon? It's kind of like rowing in as far as it's just like, how much can I push through psychologically? How far can I push my body? It's as opposed to something like surfing where, you know, you could argue it's more about developing a, a bunch of different skills. Well, I guess in ways surfing can be as well, because if you're intimidated about paddling out, you have that kind of mentality of, okay, I'm just going to do, you know, I'm just going to uh, dock dive or turtle roll one more wave. Um, so you have that a little bit with surfing as well. But um, I don't know. I've, I've trained for stuff all my life. Playing volleyball through college, there was this constant, uh, have quite a strong competitive nature. No, it's I hadn't something noticed, I've, really. <laughs> It's something I've always enjoyed doing, and even after, uh, even after playing, um, I started to sign up for like half marathons and stuff. And I like the training process; you can see the progress. And I mean, I hate running; it's not something I enjoy. Um, but when you get tired or like the pain kicks in, it it really is just kind of like a bit of a mental thing. You can always kind of trick yourself into going a little bit further. Like, all right, I'm just going to run to that tree and then you can walk or I'm just going to go for like five more minutes or, you know, when you find that like once you've, once you start like bargaining with yourself, it doesn't really (laughs) hurt as bad and you can go a lot further than you think. Yeah. I find those kind of mental tricks that you can do to push yourself through stuff really interesting. Yeah. I was used to find when I'd have a big hold down in surfing, I would, uh, try and wrap out public enemy lyrics underwater <laughs> and see how many verses I could get through of, uh, you know, it'll take a nation of millions to hold us back before I come up to the surface. <laughs> yeah, it's a good trick. Multiple <laughs> verses is a pretty hardcore hold down. I like it. I'm going to do that next time I have a hold down. That's a good one. That. Right, before we uh, move on to the rest of the show, um, uh, just a, a slight clarification from what was our previous discussion show. Um, in episode 47, we were talking about fish surfboards. Ash, you gave a lowdown on the history of the fish. And um, Jesse was asking about boards sliding out. And I mentioned that on a thruster, uh, you can really rely on pushing through the turn with your back foot, but that that isn't an efficient or, or good way to achieve the turn. And uh, we, we had a couple of listeners write in about it, sort of saying that that, that was a little confusing because they thought they were really meant to get their weight on their back leg and, and drive through a turn on a shortboard. So just to, to clarify what we're talking about, you do want to initiate almost any turn on a surfboard. You do initiate by bringing the weight onto your back foot. The key is then how long you hold the weight on the back foot. And what we're really talking about here is is where people actually bring the weight back onto the front foot and complete the turn by pushing out with their back leg. And at that point, a thruster will tend to just kind of, uh, you'll get stability and you'll actually get a little bit of forward drive from the fins um, and it will push you through the turn a little bit further. But on a twin fin that doesn't have as much lateral resistance, what will tend to happen is the tail will slide out. But 
bringing that weight forwards onto your front leg and sort of kicking out with your back leg isn't a very efficient way to do a turn. You'll only ever push the board through about 20 to 40 degrees maybe. The board will normally be quite flat to the water and it just isn't a very complete turn and the board will exit without nearly as much speed as it would do if it was kept over on rail. So just to clarify, a push turn you're saying is when someone's really straightening their back leg from being bent to straight and therefore they get that little bit of extra drive out of the back of the board. Whereas what we really want to be doing is compressing, staying compressed, leaning on the rail with your whole body because that way there's, you're not going to run out of leg. I mean, technically a, a push turn is only going to be a really good way of doing a long rail turn if you've got like go-go gadget knees and you can yeah. keep pushing. <laughs> yes. Otherwise you're going to just run out of leg and then you've run out of torque and the turn kind of stops. And, yeah. and you see people do it through bottom turns all the time, don't you? Yeah, you do. And, and, and so then the advantage of surfing a, a, a twin fin uh, or, or a quad or, or something that doesn't have that stabilizing back fin is that when you try and use that technique, you're going to feel the board slide out from underneath you and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a really good indicator that your technique is not as, as efficient as it could be. I was actually coaching that exact same point about an hour ago. There we go. Um, in that, <laughs> yeah, there's a really good feedback loop for having inefficient weight, or, or as we were saying, pushing a turn in a bottom turn when you're on a twin fin, because basically if you do push it, you're going to just slide out. You're either going to just lose all your speed or the tail's actually essentially going to go out. Um, whereas a cutback, you can almost rely on the power of the wave to get you back going. It won't be quite as efficient of a turn. But you you might not, you know, the consequences aren't losing the rest of the wave. So, yeah, the bottom turns a really, really good indication. It's funny. It's one of those things where as soon as you start noticing it in people surfing, you'll, it really leaps out at you. And surfing just looks so much more beautiful when people don't do that, when they don't push through turns, i.e. trying to get the extra little few degrees by just straightening their back leg in the middle of the turn. I, I've been... What, my what to watch this week actually is, is Steph Gilmore and I always think she's just one of the best surfers for anyone to watch man or woman because she really like stays on rail nice and smooth from turn to turn and the transitions are so beautiful I've actually moved myself from thrusters onto bonzers and fishes a lot more precisely because I'm trying not to it's, it's such a seductive thing to want to do when you're in the middle of the turn and you just want a little bit more uh, and, and training yourself not to do it exactly as you say by putting yourself on boards where there isn't the positive feedback from doing it there's a negative feedback so you, it gets you out of the habit of doing it and it makes your surfing so much more beautiful yeah and, and you it's so seductive as well to see you know let's say a surf clip of Jordy Smith where he's blowing the fins out or John John where he's spending as much time backwards as forwards and you're thinking yeah I'm sliding the tail you know I'm, I'm getting a little bit extra out of it but the mechanics of what they're doing to get that board around, their tail is actually above the nose. So there's no actual push with their back foot. They're releasing their tail from the the wave, which is almost a total different genre uh, of maneuver. Yeah. So I feel like sometimes you know, people try to take the shortcut from A to B, but in fact, you know, it's it's really messing with your overall mechanics to get there. Okay, rolling into uh, the news. We've obviously been a while since we've done any kind of digest, so there's been lots and lots of stories, but we're, we're just going to skim over a few of the important ones. Real big news, as far as we're all concerned, the WSL has a new CEO at last. Sophie Goldschmidt has taken over from the interim, which was Zerk Diff, who took over from Paul Speaker. So I don't know what her surfing background is, 
but she seems like a an extremely capable and articulate woman. So she's from the UK. She's from the UK, but she's been living in, in America for the last... Yeah, I think she got a tennis scholarship to an American university, and then she got involved with Adidas, or Adidas, depending on where you're from. Yeah, and then she was in charge of marketing for the RFU, which is the Rugby Football Union, which again, most of our American listeners won't have the faintest idea what I'm talking about. But that's a really big deal outside of the States. And yeah, I don't know, I, I watched a couple of interviews with her last night. She was on the Olympic Games Committee, and she did like a like a sit-round thing where they were talking about the Rio Olympics where she was. And she was talking as well about the last Rugby World Cup in the UK. And I was really impressed by the concise way that she answered questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, she seems very strong. Here's a little clip of her talking about what she thinks are the qualities needed to be an inspirational leader in the sports industry. Hmm, that's a good question. Um... I think great leaders have a real vision. Um, they're very forward-looking. Um, they are willing to push the boundaries, um, and then they're able to inspire um, their followers to really focus on that vision and where they want to get to. I think they have great integrity. People trust them. They know they've got their back. Um, and I think they're very hardworking and committed, but in a way that makes them pretty balanced individuals that are approachable um, and that people aspire to be like. I was also <laughs> really interested with the WSL hiring Joe Carr as their, uh, was it content strategy manager? Yeah, well, uh, chief strategist, yeah. Chief strategy officer. So yeah, that was just a couple of days ago before we recorded. And, and Joe Carr, he's a, he was an executive with UFC, which obviously has a pretty pay-per-view strategy, which I've heard rumors that the WSL might be moving towards, which I think it makes sense. I mean, they've been flirting with the idea of pay-per-view for quite a long time now, haven't they? And the idea that, that you know, there'll be a paywall to, to, to watch it. Would you guys pay? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, can I say two things? Yeah. Thing number one is, I know that one of our other news items this week is that there's the Kelly Slater Wave Pool contest happening later in September? It is indeed, yes. Yeah, straight after the Trestles event on September 17th. Um, it's not, I think, been fully announced yet. I don't think the WSL's made its announcement, but it looks like it's going to be a, a, a WSL specialty event. Something else that I've noticed, and you guys tell me if you agree. So when webcasts first started happening, people who were already surfers like us were suddenly like, oh my God, you can watch a surf contest live after years and years of reading about the J-Bay contest in Surfer Magazine two months after it happened and, and maybe seeing a few highlights of it in some surfer's you know, uh, profile movie a year or two years later. We were actually able to watch it live with these articulate commentators explaining what was going on. <laughs> and I don't know why you're laughing, Harry. Um, but after what, how many years has the World Tour been webcasted now? Five years, six years? No, it's going, it's getting on 10, 10 years yeah. now. Okay, so I, I feel like with a lot of people, when I, when I speak to a lot of people who are really into surfing, uh, like, it's almost like the novelty's wearing off. Like, there, there are people who now are just like, I can't spend eight hours in a day like, watching a handful of waves and sometimes nothing happening for 40 minutes. It's just, I, I don't think... Um, spreading it to a wider audience is going to work because I don't think you're going to keep people engaged. You know, and I say that one for whom, you know, surfing is, is my life, my hobby, all my vacations are surf vacations, my business, I love it. But like, you know, I, I'm not sitting and watching 
the whole of a surf contest. And if I'm not watching it, like who is watching it? Yeah, I don't know. I bet the WSL has some pretty good demographic data um, and especially the kind of heavyweights that they're bringing in. Because um, I've had almost the opposite experience in that I've always really liked watching the events, but I'm also probably on the very top scale of interested in surfing. Whereas my girlfriend or partner would never have watched it with me. Now, Lauren is not nearly as interested in surfing and she watches every event start to finish. Uh, my parents are not too particularly interested in surfing, but they're watching even the highlight packages that WSL puts together. So I think it's actually spreading a bit more. And a lot of that is it's a much more watertight product. They have these packages that you can watch in 10 minutes rather than putting eight hours aside. And I don't know, I feel like they're stimulating a lot more interest in it than, than in years past. Well, that's really interesting. I'd be, I'd love to know what their data actually says on it. And yeah. I, I still, I mean, we've talked about this on the show before, so we won't go into it again now, but I, I still feel like they could do a much better job putting out a 90 minute show where where you really get to enjoy the drama by pulling live bits of heats out, mm-hmm. not just a highlight reel, but setting up moments of drama with a narrative and then playing you know, five or ten minutes of a live heat and then going on to the next one, like they do with Wimbledon. Yeah. Well, and, and, and which they do produce and goes out on ABC television. It's just that you don't get access to it. Oh, but we don't see it because it's not on the, on the web. My mom will quite often email me and say, you know, this, this contest is on and it was from two weeks ago. Yeah. You know, you already kind of know the results. But yeah, they put together this beautiful... In fact, do you remember, we met the guys that were filming the filler shots oh, in, in France. France. And they were going around filling the, filming all those filler shots. And they produce, I think it's a 90-minute package that tells the entire story from the start of the event to the final. What went on and, and all the details. But I've, I've never seen one because yeah. they're, they're never put online. I, w- I would love to, I'd love to have access to that. Because the amount of times that I've got like a really busy day of work and I know the contest is going on and I get to the end of the day... And, I, and I, yeah, I want to I sit down and watch 90 minutes of surfing and I want to enjoy the drama. I don't want to just see a highlights package. I want to I be able to live through those little five, 10 minute segments of, of, of live action drama. Yeah, over the last season, I've kind of noticed that the WSL is sort of in a full on media blitzkrieg right now and that they have the live event. They have, you know, 10 minute summaries of each heat. They have 90 minute summaries of the whole event. They have it a replay on the homepage, rewatch the whole thing through. I sort of feel like they're trying a lot of different outlets right now with maybe the hopes that they're finding which one the audience is, is taking to the most so they can maybe pursue that in the future. Cause I feel like how much content they're producing right now may not be sustainable. Yeah. That's interesting. That could be what they're doing. Just, they could just be audience testing. Cause you can see, you know, there's Instagram highlights where it's trying to create a narrative on that. There's, I mean, there's literally anything from five seconds to three hours. So yeah, maybe they're just testing different audiences. Well, uh, Sophie Goldschmidt cited one of her big influences as Bill Beaumont, who used to play rugby with Jonathan Webb, who was my next door neighbor growing up. So maybe we can get <laughs> Sophie, <laughs> Sophie Goldschmidt on the show and ask her. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like it would work. <laughs> Definitely. So consider that a, a definite future episode, listeners. Tune in in two weeks. Yes. Um, so, yeah, we, we mentioned the uh, the contest that's possibly coming up at the uh, Kelly Slater Wave Pool. There is also a rumour um, that the Slater Wave Pool is about to open to the public. The, the reason the rumour about the contest has been going around is that they had to file to get, um, you know, public public access licences for the park. And the local newspaper up in Limor picked up on the application and 
put a story out and then of course the entire surfing world jumped on top of it i'm pretty impressed with the hard-hitting journalism of the lamore times yeah <laughs> don't you <laughs> underestimate them <laughs> outstanding work um but yeah so they, they have applied at least, you know i don't know what their actual plan is but they have applied to become a public venue and as well as applying for the right to run surf contests they've also applied to become an open venue uh, running from 6am till 11pm with 50 staff. Uh, so that's potentially quite exciting. Um, it'd be fun to go and have a chance to, to surf that wave. We can go stay at my, my aunt's house. She's in, uh, she's in Lamore, which is technically considered a city in Kings County. There we go. <laughs> there we go. We just, listeners, you missed out on a 25-minute argument about what constitutes a city versus a town versus a county. Yeah. Um, My vote is we should have left it in. I thought it was a fascinating conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Harry seemed to think it wasn't sufficiently surf-centric. <sighs> um, sticking with the WSL and, and the World Tour, um, B. Durbage has announced that he's going to retire at the end of this season um, uh, because he's moving into the coaching role for the Australian Olympic team. I'm a big fan of B. Durbridge. I'm, I'm really happy that he's landed on his feet and in a good place. He's certainly someone that I wouldn't mind having coaching me. Yeah, I, I feel like we're in the era of blue-collar professionals moving to interesting coaching roles. So I know that uh, Bede's had a difficult career in the past because he was sponsored by Billabong and by Fox. Mm-hmm. After that, I think he was, I think I might not have this right, but I think he was dropped by Billabong when they ha- ha- kind of fell on hard times about 10 years ago. And I seem to remember an interview him saying that, you know, he was dropped because he didn't have a thing. He wasn't like the punk guy. He wasn't the air guy or the the big wave guy you know he was just like a solid surfer but he didn't really have like a marketing hook that would move product um but you know i think that's kind of a cool thing about him yeah i think that's too bad because around 2008 that's definitely the demographic that surf companies were were shooting for was like a punk guy or like a angry kid guy um whereas now there's a lot of lifestyle surf brands like outer known or, or patagonia that having a surf guy like somebody who's just kind of blue collar hardcore surfer would actually have quite a lot of marketing appeal. Are you allowed to be sponsored by Patagonia if you don't have a beard? That's true. That <laughs> might be a problem. That might be a problem. Yeah. Moving on, it would... <laughs> did you like that? I did. I was just thinking of uh, the facial hair on Bede's face. And I was like, oh, yeah, he is a bit peach fuzzy. <laughs> and, then I was, and then I was running through my head. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I couldn't really... Patagonia wouldn't work for me either. Yeah. <laughs> Back to the drawing board. Yeah, you definitely couldn't do that job. It, Mick Fanning also appears to be sort of lining up his options for post-surf. He's, he's moved into a, an ownership role with Creatures of Leisure that he's been working with for a while. He's got his line of softboards coming out at the start of September. I, lo- I love the, his press release, which has obviously not been said by Mick Fanning and has been written by someone from the marketing somewhere. department at Creatures of Leisure. You know, I fully support this product because we're now producing a product which is optimal for the surfing community. Mick Fanning (laughs) doesn't talk like that. He likes to go, yeah, in the middle of every sentence. Yeah, well, you know. (laughs) That wasn't it, was it? No, that wasn't it. No, that was a bit of a mess. Okay, so final thing in the news that just caught my eye because it was kind of relevant to us being as how we do surf lessons was a little survey that's been done on the different prices of surf lessons around the world do you guys see this yeah i was quite surprised i I think first of all this is um more like sort of conventional entry-level surf school type stuff yes but i was quite surprised to see that this was uh norway was the most expensive 
Yeah, well, having been to Norway, I'm not surprised that it's the most expensive. I'm just surprised that there are surf lessons in Norway. So I, I yeah, <laughs> that's true. There is that beautiful right-hand point break, but I feel like Norway is the sort of place you go if you're shooting a novelty section and you know the surf's going to be good and you're already a primo level surfer and you're going to do a quick strike mission in and out. Yeah. I don't feel like it's somewhere that you'd want to go to learn to surf. I googled Norway surf schools mm-hmm. and I found that most of the websites are in English, which is weird because that sort of implies that people who are not from Norway are going to Norway in order to surf. And the other thing that I thought was quite cool was that the website that came out at the top, which was called uh, La Point Camps, little nod to you guys, have adopted the Surf Simply Level 1 to 3 system of cool. uh, coaching and clarification of, uh, of their guests. So, Very um, cool. Yeah, nice, cool. Stoked it was helpful, guys. Yeah, I thought the thing that did surprise me is that the America is second. Really? Yeah, quite solidly. The most, second most expensive place in the world to do a surf lesson. Where would you have thought the second most expensive place was? I don't know. I, I think I would have assumed that it was, I guess it kind of makes sense. It's probably one of the more developed countries where there's a higher standard, you know, higher cost of living. But How did they get that number to, though? Did they just gather all as much data as they could on the price per hour of surf camp and then just average it? Yeah, this is the thing. Whenever you see like USA as a category in the list of countries, it's, it's basically not really one country. You know what I mean? Like every state is almost as different from the neighboring state as right. most countries in Europe are from each other. Um, and you almost kind of feel like when you see a list of countries, you should also have the states as individual states kind of, you know. Mm-hmm. To answer your question, Asher, this was done by a uh, an online surf travel agency. Ah, don't um, plug them. They obviously did the list as a as a PR campaign. Well, you're it playing worked. into their hands. It worked. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. Asher. Do you want to bring us up to speed? We've been offline for quite a significant amount of time. We've had three men's WSL events and one women's world tour event. Yeah, so... Ash is now going to talk us through them heat by heat. Yeah, exactly. We were just talking about the WSL media packages. I am a viable option to just talk <laughs> to <laughs> all rounds of all three events. No, no, I'll, um, I'll, I'll just do a bit of a, of a quick analysis of three of what I think are the best uh, contest of the year basically the the pacific leg sort of the dream tour leg we had fiji jay bay and chopu and all got to some extent really really nice surf so fiji was taken out by wilco uh he beat Connor o'leary in the final and i thought that wilco had a pretty dominant performance in that event did you guys catch it fiji was fun like it wasn't perfect fiji by any by any stretch of the imagination but mm-hmm. it you know it was uh, fiji's always a good one to watch it's always fun to see the guys out there on on these big big sort of reeling left-handers yeah i i think that when fiji and chopu are both in kind of the manageable size range it really shows a big advantage to goofy footers um it's a lot easier to approach cloud break on your forehand um, and really be able to mix up the kind of turn so i was really impressed with wilco i was very sad about how slater bowed out he lost super early on and in his own contest in his own contest the (laughs) kelly slater pro um, in terrible waves. Uh, it was horrible for the opening round, so he didn't even really get a chance yeah. um, to show himself. But to me, the most interesting thing about the Fiji event was how it left five surfers all within 500 points from each other at the end, which is pretty negligible. So coming out of Fiji, uh, we had Wilco, John John Florence, Jordy Smith, Owen Wright, and Adriana D'Souza all just neck and neck. 
Yeah, which, I mean, halfway through the tour, to have that many guys within 500... I mean, it, it's what, 10,000 points for a win? Mm-hmm. And they're within 500 points of each other. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I was thinking yeah, 10,000 points is sort of the midway of the, the season. You're thinking if there's a 10,000-point difference, it'd still be a catchable lead. Like, people have blown bigger leads. But yeah, uh, Fiji was pretty good, but then it set up J-Bay, which was an absolutely amazing event. Um, I think it was my favorite event since the 2008 uh, Chopu contest. I, I, uh, first of all, the waves on this event were awesome. Yeah, I, they that, stole the show. Like Normally there is that problem of trying to squeeze in a full eight rounds of competition into a two or three day swell. And they got, what, four or five days? Yeah, they almost pumping. They almost had too much waves. They were calling the event off when it was all time. Just yeah. like, ah, it's pretty good, but tomorrow's going to be really gonna good. Be even better. And then there were sharks and there were boats getting surfing waves. There was the twin fin event. The boat that was going down the line in the in the video that I'm sure a lot of our listeners will, will have seen. If you haven't, there, there's a clip doing the rounds where a boat got caught up at the top of the point and couldn't make it out the back over the waves. So it started racing down the the point and then was kind of getting sucked up one of the waves and the driver who didn't surf and but was just a boat driver was trying to start the second engine while trying not to get pitched sideways by the lip of the wave so what it looks like is he's doing a top turn on this huge boat <laughs> off the wave it's amazing well, it's i think everyone assumed cool. that it was a good surfer and a good boat driver just like playing and yeah it was totally like luck it's that the boat was in the water because of the you know the risk of sharks and they had a safety boat out, but obviously it, and he said he just parked up where he'd parked up every other day, turned one of the engines off, left the other engine idling just in case, and then the set of the day came in, yeah. <laughs> he just totally stuffed. Yeah, he had to, but that had to have been a pretty shocking moment. Like, oh god, everybody's watching. I'm never getting this boat driver job again. <laughs> that's that's got to be up in the top surfer near misses videos, along with that jet ski going over. At, uh, Manoa Manoa yeah. at Chopu. But, um, yes, honestly, so much happened in J-Bay that it was tough to boil it down to a manageable segment. So I kind of have my big three uh, favorite things, first of which was Philippe Toledo's performance. Yeah. And, I mean, other than John John at Margaret's this year, I can't think of a, a performance that just kind of rewrote what was possible at a wave like Toledo at J-Bay. Yeah, I, I mean, J-Bay has always been won by smooth clean on-rail surfing yeah you know he was, and he was i mean that that 10 where it's you know two linked aerials mm-hmm. you know that's that's not how anyone has ever really gone anywhere surfing j-bay like that and then felipe went on to win the event you know surfing like that i'm really impressed with how felipe toledo has consistently reinvented himself which isn't an easy task he's always been an amazing aerial surfer um but he's taken a lot of flack and a lot of criticism for how he surfs on rail, how he performs in bigger waves, and that's clearly where he's put his time in. That's where where he's been been practicing. And I don't know who's coaching Toledo, but whoever they are, really, is, he he's done an excellent job addressing his weaknesses. I'm not sure about his hair at the moment. <laughs> yeah, he does not have a good stylist <laughs> right now. Whoever told him to uh, to bleach it was. Thing is, though, I feel like when you're it's just like when you're a soccer player, you've got to do a thing to make you pop out visually on the field. Whether it looks good or not is almost secondary to whether people are able to go, oh yeah, the guy with the blue hair. You yeah, know? but I think doing a 15-foot alley-oop across impossibles yeah, <laughs> J-Pay is going to make you stand out. 
don't know. We could ask B. Durbage about this. He didn't have his thing. Philippe uh, Toledo, silver hair guy. Got to have a thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought that was really impressive. Um, my favorite piece of the event was the twin fin division. Oh, that was so cool. And not just because I've been plugging twin fins a lot lately on the podcast, <laughs> but I felt, I felt vindicated on uh, how hard I've been pushing twin fins with how those guys approach Jeffrey's Bay. Did you happen to see that? I didn't. Ah, oh, you were on the, boat. on the boat. Yeah, yeah. you missed out. It, it, it was a slightly weird event because they didn't broadcast it on the WSL website. They only broadcast it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And the only way you could watch it was, was through a Facebook Live event. Um, so I'll put the link. You can still watch it, but I'll, I'll, I'll put the link to that in. Um, and it was judged by the audience. Who clearly did not know what was going on. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I do think that the right person, Geordie Smith got the nod and, and won it. Connor Coffin got less than 1% of the votes. <laughs> See, I thought that Connor won. I thought Connor was surfing those boards amazing. Yeah, I agree. I thought he was surfing incredibly. But the interesting thing, so that they had they had 61,000 viewers. Which I think is more than any other piece of the event. But that was over the course of the hour. The most number of people tuned in at any one occasion was only 2,000 people. Really? So they had a lot of people tuning in, tuning out. They never had more than, I think it was 2.2 thousand um, viewers at any one time. So that's a bit like having the judges of a heat only watch like a minute of the heat each. Yeah. Well, (laughs) and so then it was done. You had to write a comment saying like, um, go Connor or go Geordie or whatever. They only got 9,000 comments in total. So of 61,000 people that tuned in. That's quite a lot. I think that's quite a high percentage of, in terms of views to commenters as a percentage like that's like one in five, one in six is pretty good. Well, but given that the commentary was every five minutes being told, right, you've got to vote for your person, vote for them. Just you've just got to write it in the comments. That'll that you know that's going to score it. Uh, that they still only got the nine thousand people engaging on that on that level with it. When you're watching a, the you know any kind of webcast, like with the WSL one, when they're like you know tweet us at you know this, don't forget to hashtag Fiji yeah. Pro whatever. Like, do you ever do that? No, but there's no consequence to that. Like, that, it, I'm not going to achieve anything. Whereas this is, you are judging this contest. If you write Go Connor, yeah. Connor Coffin's score is going to go up. Yeah. I don't think it was too friendly on time zones to the West Coast where a lot of Connor's fan base would be. Yeah, but that's assuming that people are purely judging he's American, therefore I'll vote for him. And Geordie Smith only won because he was South African. Yeah, I think with a Facebook Live event, though, you're, you're creeping into a pretty solid chance for that bias. Yeah. yeah, yeah, probably. And I think if there's one thing we've learned, it's that people like their own country quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Um, Defin- I'm definitely inserting the pale blue dot essay at the end of the podcast. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I thought their approach to the waves was really, really impressive. I thought they kind of showed that, yeah, they, they're the best surfers in the world no matter what they're riding. Um, and they could take really beautiful lines on these twin fins. I think it showed that there is real uh, potential for, you know, how we were talking about having a flow-based. Trim-based tour. Exactly, the trim-based tour. The TBT. How watchable was that, you know, as as, as somebody who engages with a lot of surf media, for me, I enjoyed watching that event way more than I enjoyed watching a normal heat. Yeah. But largely because it was different rather than better. Yeah, slightly, but also it was a lot more fast-paced. There were four guys in the water, and they were just mm-hmm. out there having fun because it was being judged on a, you know, they weren't 
being tactical about trying to get the score in any way, shape or form. They were just out there enjoying themselves, knowing that people were going to vote on... Well, for, I, for Geordie Smith. For Geordie Smith. <laughs> but um, there was a lot going on. There were a lot of waves being ridden. There were waves being ridden in a way that I could... I relate could, to. I, relate to. You know, I was looking at that and going, oh, I kind of want to go and grab Ash's twin fin now and try and do some of those mm-hmm. bottom turns. Whereas... Yeah, when I watch John John on a high-performance shortboard, it's impressive, but I'm under no illusion that I will ever be able to do anything close to that. Really, I like to live in a little bubble where <laughs> part of me tells myself that I'll be able to do those nice big drop wallet laybacks in huge surf. Yeah, I'm like, I, I, I could do those. I just haven't been surfing Margaret's much lately. Exactly, that's the only If I had the reason. wave, that's what I could do. No, I think, I think there's a lot of waves on tour that are really open to that. Um, and as a sideshow, I mean, it drew a ton of viewership. It brought a lot of interest around the event. It'll fit really neatly into the, the, the package production after the fact. Yeah, I mean, think about a log at Small Snapper or a kind of a mid-length hull design. That'd be so fun to watch her. Mm. Um, do you guys remember that footage of Craig Anderson at Chopu and the kind of like mid-length yeah. single fin? Just a couple guys messing around on those would be insane at Chopu. Uh, it, it, yeah, I think it's a really, really good idea. And lastly, uh, the big story of J-Bay is Kelly Slater folding his foot in half. For, the, for I think he said, the third time yeah, that, that he's pretty... done basically the same thing. This is catastrophically worse. He's broken it in a lot of ways. How did he do it? Board rode, rode over the foam ball, and as the, as the foam ball kind of punched the board back into his foot, it, his foot just folded up. Really unimpressive wave, like pulling into a closeout. But yeah, it looked like he would have been fine 99 times out of 100 oh, but he guy. said it's the third time that he's done this injury in his lifetime and he's just gonna have to he said it if, if i do nothing else from this i'm gonna have to think about how i ride the foam ball on my forehand yeah i it's such a shame because in those conditions uh, that's what you want to see slater in big long drawn out jbay you know that would have been the uh, such an amazing swan song for him. Yeah. Especially considering that this is potentially his last year or probably his last year on tour. Um, that would have just been such a nice display of his surfing kind of at the, the, the end of his career. So that was sad. Um, and I guess the question now is, can he bounce back? I mean, that's a pretty career ending injury. I mean, the thing is, if you're going to keep surfing as you go through your mid to late forties, you know, things like this are going to happen more and more. It's not Mm -hmm. like you're going to go out winning a world title. You're going to go out either with an injury or you're going to go out by just losing heats more and more consistently Mm -hmm. until you just either don't make the cut or just, you know, decide not to surf anymore. Yeah, I mean, after the surgery, they're saying four to six months of recovery. So that's him out for the rest of this season. He could potentially come back. He's, He's probably got a good enough score over the last previous events that he'll probably qualify for next year if he wanted to come back at snapper but he's going to be very very low seed i would love to i'd love it if kelly moved into the commentary booth for contests oh he would be a great commentator fantastic commentator he, like his he, when he talks about surfing he's so specific and um you know he, he just listening to him when he talked about the, the pipe contest that he was commentating mm-hmm. and he said you know if you sit there then when a wave comes from you know this angle, it will close out. Whereas if you sit six feet to the right, there's a little rock there. 
and it always bubbles over that rock and you can see that you know he's sitting to the left of the rock not the right of the rock like he just the insight and he's so specific and he doesn't talk in general terms and it suddenly like when he's in the box like my ears prick up and i I really want to listen to the commentary there's some excellent examples of that at j-bay um once he you know his foot was under control he had a couple just cameos in the the commentator booth and one heat with Mick Fanning in particular, he had such a detailed analysis of Mick's equipment. He was like, oh, this this board looks good volume-wise, but he's definitely missing um, a certain amount of straightness in the outline. It's not holding through the second half of his, his, his turn. If he could just elongate it here, I think that you know, this would be the, the result. And it was really impressive how he kind of broke down each piece and was kind of cause and effect. Like, you, he needs this because of that. And, yeah, I think he'd be an amazing commentator, especially because he, he does have a bit of a vested interest in the WSL. Mm-hmm. We don't know the extent of it, but yeah, he, he'd be an amazing addition. If you're listening, Kelly. Yes, indeed. Finally, after J-Bay, uh, the tour moved to Chopu, which finished in a record three days. They ran in the first three days of the waiting period. It was not, I mean, not that it was a terrible contest, but it was not Chopu Chopu. It was, you know... Yeah, it had its moments. It wasn't amazing, though. There was the occasional good heat, but, but for the most part, it, it, didn't, it didn't look... So. Did, you, did you see the tour notes video? Yeah. When they're all having the warm-up surf? No, I haven't seen it and yet. And it's, it's like pretty small, pretty small waves. They're doing their best, and the entire of the top 36 guys are all out on it. And one of the guys paddles past the cap- camera and goes... Yeah, this is pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once again, I thought Chopu was a good example of how goofy footers really thrive in the small left barrels. It, it, Chopu seems to have such an advantage on your forehand when it's small and then such a distinct advantage to regular footers when it's big because they can drag a lot more of their body. They're, they're slowing down a lot better. They have that kind of more advanced um, backside tube riding technique and... When the swell was pulsing, the guys like Julian Wilson and John John looked amazing. And then when the swell was a bit smaller in the slower heats, the Italo Ferreras, uh, the Mendinas, the Wilcos, Ace Bucken, they just had such a distinct advantage. I was also a bit taken off by all the, uh, it was a really tactical event. Tactics seemed to play a huge part. And Mendina has just, he is the best villain. He's like the <laughs> perfect villain on tour. He's paddling around everybody. There was, uh, in his heat with Chloe, I thought they were going to start throwing punches. They were just paddling on top of each other, up the point, and then the same thing in the final with Julian Wilson. But I was really impressed uh, after the heat, Julian Wilson saying, you know, we're, we're going to leave it all in the water and that we're professionals about this and we just both want to win. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's cool. the right attitude to come in with, isn't it? You know, let, let, let other people decide who's the hero and who's the villain. At the end of the day, uh, Julian Wilson winning Tahiti, uh, putting him back in the world title race at fifth. Really tight overall race with Jordy Smith in first, going to Lowers, his, his new backyard. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 could this be his year? I don't know. I think it could be. Looking at the rankings, pretty much everyone has two throwaways. So within that top five, whoever does the best in the last events of the year is, is going to come across world champion. So pretty exciting of uh, into the year. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Did you see any of the US Open as well? Oh, I love the US Open. I thought it was great this year. I, I, I missed most of it, but I saw I saw a few highlights. Didn't didn't Kanoa Gashi like body check Felipe Toledo on Second one way? Second event that's happened this year. Um, Felipe Toledo got an interference that took him out of 
uh, Brazil and subsequently Fiji because of how he handled it um, in almost a mirrored image. So uh, for the listener who doesn't have the video right in front of it, uh, the, AA, or the WSL rulebook says when priority hasn't been established, so at the beginning of a man-on-man heat, um, the surfer closest to the peak gets right away. Uh, however, with these pro surfers, a lot of times on this small wave, they actually want to take off behind the breaking section. So if you were to think of the wave sort of like a TP or an A-shape, um, they want to take off on the opposite side of the peak to give them a, a nice shot at that first section. And both times, it was Kanoa Irigashi taking off on the peak and Philippe Toledo coming from the opposite side. And in both times uh, to... Uh, a viewer who's knows what's going on. It, it looked like Toledo had the clear advantage and he was setting himself up better for the wave. But in both situations, Irigashi got the nod because he was closer to the peak. Whereas he was, Felipe was kind peak. of not backdooring it, but coming from behind it. Yeah. Coming from behind the peak. So, um, he didn't look too happy about that. Oh, Felipe. Oh, Felipe was not in him and his platinum blonde hair. He was not excited. <laughs> but yeah, I think that is an example where those rules need to become a little bit more flexible. Because to, I mean, to the judge's eyes, to anybody's eyes on tour, even it was clear that Philippe was in the right, but you know, the rules are the rules. So the judges had to call that. So talking of the U S open, the, uh, women, unfortunately have to use that as one of their world tour events, which is a shame, which is a shame. Um, Sage Erickson won, uh, the U S open. Um, she beat Tatiana Weston Webb in the final. Tatiana Weston Webb's surfing is looking a lot better, even, it's like she's like filled out a little bit. She's got mm-hmm. a bit more weight and a bit more power. She doesn't look like a like skinny stick insect teenage girl. She looks like more like woman size, and she's and she yeah she's like really hitting the lip with a lot more power. I mean, I I just thought that looked really cool. It's really nice to see her surfing develop. Yeah, yeah. Um, the waves were questionable as ever. Yeah, I, I, I don't share your joy of the U.S. Open. I didn't, I didn't watch any of it. But um, Tyler Wright is now in the gold jersey for, for the women rolling into trestles. I'm really excited to watch the women at lowers. I think that is a wave that really displays how far women's surfing has come. Uh, I love watching Carissa Moore there. I love watching Stephanie Gilmore there. Um, yeah, I'm really excited that the, it runs in conjunction with the men's event now. Yeah. Okay, so before we move on from the, the WSL, just a quick roundup of our fantasy results in the, uh, in the Surf Simply camp. Um, on the men's, uh, Leroy Brown won the Fiji event. Haddad Surf 420 won J-Bay. And Knights Who Knee won Tahiti. Knights Who Knee. Nice. I like what everyone do. I, yeah. think, I think that's a clear Monty Python. Yeah, I think you're right. That's a good one. Um, overall, uh, Muffy's Team G picks is in the lead over Goat Boat and Do You Like Jazz? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Obviously. All of you guys nice and close. So good luck rolling into the second half of the tour. Good names, um, guys. <laughs> on the women's tour, Sub just beat Dogtown for the US Open event. Sub is doing well. I've noticed Sub's regular appearances through the podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, however, not in the three-way tie first place. Ryan just won, Uncle Bull and Joel's Not My Name are in a three-way tie at the moment. So there we go. Uh, well done to you guys. All right. So some of you might have seen uh, recently on Billabong's homepage uh, up until the other day that they had a photo of a guy on the left, a woman on the right, uh, the guy who was surfing and boosting quite a massive air. 
Krieg McTaggart, wasn't it? I think so. Uh, the girl who is on the right looks like she's reenacting some sort of scene out of a romance novel with her back arched in a bikini in the sand, suits not even on properly. Uh, and there's a girl named uh, Karen Knowlton who didn't really like this. She wrote a slightly rant-like post, which is titled Billabong. The post essentially snowballed, and uh, it kind of prompted Billabong to actually swap the photo out for a girl who is actually surfing. There's quite a lot going on here. I think part of the original shock of like some of the some of the viewers is just that Billabong is essentially a surf company, so it, it appeared almost as a side-by-side comparison. A guy who is surfing in their gear and a girl who's sort of rolling around in the sand. Yeah, I mean, the kind of initial reaction is, is you know, this, this girl's kind of title, kind of you, Bill Bong. It's just, you're kind of looking at it going, what the hell? You know, you're supposed to be a surf company, which is, you know, as Billabong's kind of defined. In kind of a, a second response, it makes me just think, okay, well, you know, maybe they're not necessarily producing worthwhile women's surfwear and or they're not marketing towards someone like me. They're essentially kind of promoting their brand or, or marketing their brand towards girls who are just kind of in looking for bikinis opposed to actual surf gear. You know, I think there's a couple of things going on here. And one thing that's that's fairly self-evident when you look at the picture is that there's a fairly offensive stereotype that while a man's job is to be out there ripping and surfing hard, a woman's job is to be lying on the beach looking attractive. And, you know, that's pretty offensive for a lot of reasons. I think it's it's something that you might have expected to see in the world like 20 years ago. Exactly. Um, which is true of a lot of Billabong's board shorts, I might know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you would hope that you wouldn't see things like that now. Right. And, you know, I, I hate to bring the conversation back to politics again, but you kind of see, you know, there's a president in the White House who basically advocated sexual assault on women and using your celebrity status to do it. And I think that has made the world a different place. And I think that you can't, that we can't take it for granted that don't worry everyone, things are moving in the right direction and we should just dismiss things like this and not worry about it too much. I think it's kind of put us in a position where as a society we should be taking responsibility for every little thing and making sure that we're part of a process where we're building a society where no one is ever limited by a factor of their birth that they have no control over, whether it's their gender or their race or anything else. Now, it gets kind of complicated, I think, because Billabong's trying to sell clothes and they're probably doing what most ad companies do, which is that they run a whole bunch of ads. They look at the clicks on the ads to see which ads work better and there may not even be a conscious decision choosing the ads. It may just be a case of whichever ad performs the best, whichever image performs the best, that's the one we're going to then put on the homepage, uh, which is a very standard way of marketing stuff. And it may have been that that image performed the best. And then you're kind of left with this, you know, ethical dilemma, this moral dilemma. And I think that the mistake that a lot of people make when they're confronted with dilemmas like this is that they ask the wrong question. The question that they ask is, what's the right thing to do? And that's the wrong question in moral dilemmas. The, the right question is, what are the consequences of my actions? And there are instances in life where it's absolutely fine to sexually objectify another human being of the same sex or a different sex. And there are instances in life when it's absolutely unacceptable. 
for example, you know, just to give examples at opposite ends of the spectrum to make a point, you know, within a loving relationship, sexually objectifying your partner at a romantic moment, you know, is a really lovely thing, right? In a workplace where someone's wanting to be taken... <laughs> what? No, no. Yeah. It's true, right? Yeah, it's yeah. true. So, like, in a workplace, obviously, a, a boss objectifying an employee, totally inappropriate and unacceptable. So, you know, I think that what a company has to do, whether it's Billabong or any other company or Uber or whatever, they need to be saying, look, wh- what are the consequences of my actions? How is this going to affect the people that are involved? How is this going to affect society? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just think that I just think the right question needs to be asked. I don't think that like you Billabong is the uh, is a very helpful conversation to be having. Well, it's quite cyclical, isn't it? Because if Billabong is obviously running different ads to see what's working, and for them to actually choose that for their homepage, they have to be getting some type of feedback saying that that's actually what people are wanting. So that the the dilemma is okay. If we if we want to break the cycle of this stereotype of of women not being out there surfing but instead being some kind of cheerleader for the guys while they're out there surfing you know is it top down is it girls aspiring to this because that's what they're seeing or or, you know or is it bottom up if you'll excuse the pun Um, (laughs) is it it, uh, that was the problem with the original post (laughs) right (laughs) you know where 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 companies are doing things because that's what they're seeing um that's what people are clicking on I, I tell you what, it's quite funny. Is I wonder if you, if Billabong are actually measuring who who the demographic are that were clicking on the ad originally, because it could that be that it's not girls buying bikinis; it's just teenage boys. Teenage boys. I mean, the the the, the last survey I saw said that you know the surfing population is about ninety percent men to ten percent women. So, of people landing on that homepage, the reasonable chance that ninety percent are men. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the thing I I can see them running a load of adverts and you know going with the one that performs best, but surely there's got to be a difference between something that performs well as an advert and something that you sit on your home. You know, if someone's already typed in Billabong.com and they're landing on that page and they're just trying to choose, do I want to look at men's clothing or women's clothing? There's no sales pitch there. They've already come to your website and you're simply asking them to do you want to look at men's clothing or women's clothing. So there really isn't an excuse to have, you know, by all means, have, have a, a, a woman lying in a bikini looking pretty, but then have a guy in board shorts with his six pack out or have a guy surfing and a girl surfing, have the same thing. But there's not really any justification, I don't think, from a marketing perspective at that point. I'd say if you're already on the homepage, I think the goal there is going to be, all right, now you're trying to translate traffic into sales. So it'd be what picture once already here has the highest rate of conversion to a purchase? In which case, yeah, I don't know. You've still got that dilemma there where you're trying to say, on the one hand, they've got this marketing problem. They want to optimize sales, which I totally get. It's not like Billabong have had an easy ride of it financially. And on the other hand, you know, there's just an ethical question. Like what's the responsible way to behave as a company and as a part of the, as a, a hugely influential part of the surf community? Well, I was about to say, I mean, the, the other thing that's slightly upsetting is that Billabong has one of, if not the highest performing teams on the Women's World Tour. They have, I think, more athletes on the World Tour than any other company. And uh, Given all these these women that they're giving giving careers to, given all these women that they're they're paying, they're then going with a random swimsuit model as their as their 
they're front and center. And ironically, you know, when I see that photo, I think, you know, if I'm searching for some new surf gear, I kind of see that photo and think, well, actually, there's probably not much in here for me. Um, but if you do go into the women's side and look at the, the surf gear that they have, there's actually quite a lot of stuff that's really useful. Whereas, you know, I would, I would typically just see that and think, okay, well, you know, I'm going to check another site. So I think it's perfectly fair for companies to want to sell bikinis for people to lounge around on the beach and look attractive in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if Billabong want to hit that and they want to attract those people, but they also don't want to be seen as essentially a misogynistic company, which I'm sure that they're not, but they accidentally probably came off in this one instance. Mm -hmm. um, then, you know, wh why not? as a sort of compromise, have, you know, a bunch of images left to right that are performance to style, let's call it, where you've got men and women all the way across the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Or, or you know, and this kind of goes back to an episode a long time ago where we were talking about gender and sports. But, you know, we have obviously in our society this binary view of gender where it's just male and female. And, you know, maybe companies are kind of forced into a false dichotomy. And, and by false dichotomy, I mean gender falls on a spectrum rather than as just two different options. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I'm sure there are girls that look at that page and just think, oh, that's awesome. I want to lie on the beach in a bikini. And there are girls who look at that page and are really offended by it. So, yeah, I agree with you that, that going the whole billabong route isn't necessarily like the most productive. I think that um, if they're choosing these photos based off of like their marketing data, then we also have to give some type of feedback for them as well. But there's a, a campaign that's going around right now that's hashtag uh, like a girl. Um, they've put out this video where they've interviewed uh, young girls and asked them to essentially on camera run like a girl or throw like a girl. And they do it in what you might have thought that meant many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, they sit down with the girls and kind of explain to them, you know, what's kind of going on and, and what it, what does it really mean to run like a girl or really throw like a girl? And, and after that kind of conversation, they're actually throwing in an athletic manner and running in the way that they would run themselves. Just in Googling difference between male and female athletes, not just surfers, but also in different sports. If you Google a male athlete, what comes up is essentially the top paid players or the uh, most winning players. Um, and then if you add female in there, it's usually like the best female athletes and then the top hottest athletes. One of, you know, just in terms of golf, especially something that's kind of popped up a lot is golf models. So women who are essentially trying to get on the tour, um, but they're using social media to kind of um, get a bit of a following and they're doing so by being you know a model I've I've played a lot of golf and I've never once thought that wearing high heels would ever be a good idea but somehow they're incorporated into you know into a, a photo of someone swinging or you know that's so that's such a tough kind of ethical question though because what you're talking about those google results are literally just an algorithm saying this you know from what you've said top women's tennis player it's just spitting out what it think you know the most likely thing that it thinks you're going right. to look for. Yeah. And it's kind of where do you draw the line? I, I really like the way that you said it, actually, in that it's not, you know, it's a false dichotomy. It's not just, especially when it comes to an ad, because it's not like it can be just a photo of a girl lying on the bikini or uh, a, you know, Courtney Conalog, who's a billabong writer, you know, surfing really powerful. I think using both of those tools is really important. Right. Because, but then when it comes to a search result, that's really difficult because now how do you change the whole conceptual way of thinking? 
because it, it that search you know that search result isn't you know chauvinistic it's not a misogynistic algorithm it's just you know what is the most likely yeah but it's an indicator that that is how society yeah, views it so. that that society as a whole is more likely to search for who's the hottest female golfer than who's, who's the, the best and if you look under just the images as well like the difference of what you know, you see a photo of a female tennis player versus a male tennis player. It's most likely like her posing and, you know, a slightly more sexualized manner, whereas it's a guy in quite an athletic movement. Um, and it, and it it's goes, almost like it takes people like the Williams sisters to come along and yes. make being a female athlete cool, mm -hmm. you know, kind exactly. of like Tyler Wright and Carissa Moore have done in surfing. Yeah. Courtney Conalog or Lakey Peterson. Like, yeah. I, I get a lot of respect for those women because they like uh, they objectively try to make themselves like look I don't care if it means more sponsorship dollars I I want to portray myself in this way because I think it is important for society like Carissa Moore uh, did a photo shoot for Stab magazine a couple of years ago and I don't know if you guys have seen the photos but Stab Stab does a lot of like, pretty objectifying photo shoots right. with female pro surfers like the Alana Blanchards and. Carissa did the photo shoot where it was like a sexy lingerie Carissa Moore. And then as soon as she did it, she called back Stab and was like, look, guys, I do not want that run. I've thought about this. I, I know that my, that might make me more appealing to maybe the male demographic that your, that your magazine reads. But it's more important for me to push female surfing forward um, yeah, as an athletic woman. And, and Stab, which I have a lot of respect for, said, you know what? Yeah, let's, uh, yeah, if you're not comfortable for it, we'll can the whole project. I yeah. think it's great that she was able to kind of say that opposed to just going with what people might want her to do. I often kind of wonder if it has something to do with the wage gap, right? Because if you're in a position where you're wanting to continue to advance in your career, but maybe you don't have the sponsorship yet or you don't have the earnings yet, can you go this more of a, a model route to kind of compensate to keep you going? That's a very difficult question to answer because there's a load of false equivalencies when you're trying to calculate the, the effects of the wage gap. But I certainly think that you're right in as far as once money's on the table, it's very difficult to take the moral high ground. I mean, we've had that right now. We get, next episode, we're going to talk a lot more about uh, the Surf Simply store, which we're launching as this episode comes out. But, you know, we've had exactly the same dilemma where we've been doing photo shoots with our swimmer and models and we've been choosing what kind of models we want to have, how we want to represent them. And like, you know, we've invested as a company a huge amount of money in our development of the, of the uh, women's swimwear. And, you know, we want it to work as a business. Otherwise, we have to stop doing it. And it's very difficult to then say, you know what, I'm prepared to lose money in order to, to take the moral high ground. Anyway, I, I'd be interested to see when our listeners look at our store to get feedback from them, what they think about some of the choices we made. The point is that it's not that we should be telling all girls and all women that they have to be the greatest surfer and it's wrong if they want to lie on the beach and roll around in a bikini. I think the, the point is, going back to what I was saying earlier, is that we want to build a society where someone's gender is not a limiting factor in anything that they want to do. So going back to this photo... You just want to say, look, I, we're putting this photo on our website. Is that compounding girls who perhaps don't want to be seen as, as sex objects or as, you know, their primary function in a, in a surf environment is to be laying around on the beach in a bikini trying to be attractive. Actually, they want to 
put on weight so that they can do more powerful turns and they want to go out there and they want to charge big waves. That's what they want to do. We don't want to make them feel like they can't do that because they have to look a certain way. So again, it's just it's just about thinking about, well, what's, what's the consequences of doing this in any given situation? And, you know, we, we want to, we want to, whether it's whether it's coming top down or bottom up, we want to kind of break the cycle. Hashtag yeah. Daenerys Targaryen. <laughs> Breaker of chains. Okay, one very quick listener email before we uh, before we wrap up this episode. Um, I got an email from Danielle Volp. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Danielle. Who asked, could you advise on the best book for? The Technique of Surfing, in addition to Nick Carroll's The Complete Guide to Surfing Your Best. So I was wondering if you guys had any any thoughts on that, any books that you particularly like? I, when I was a kid, I loved uh, Taj Burrow's book for hot surfing. You have uh, to yeah. say it in an Australian accent. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, there's, I, like, I get emailed quite a lot through the surf coaching resort for people asking about, well, what they usually say is, why isn't there, why surfs have not done a book? That sounds like a really humble brag, but we do genuinely get asked that a lot. And um, the reason is that we've been trying to create something that we can evolve while it's out there, which, of course, a book, once it's published, it's out there and you can't change it and evolve Mm -hmm. it. Um, And we want to do something which we can kind of scale and keep working with. So, I mean, books is a tough one. Harry, you and I have spent a lot of time talking about building our online coaching platform, which is going to have a huge amount of information on it that's free for users to go and check out. So I didn't mean to use the email as just a plug for that. <laughs> it, still, it still is a really long time away. We've got a huge amount of work yeah. to do on it, but that is gonna, that's going to be available, and I yeah. hope that will be really helpful. Yeah, hopefully that will be good. Um, and it'll be free as well, so it's, you know. Winner. Danielle, I would agree that, that Nick Carroll's um, The Complete Guide to Surfing Your Best Volume 2 is quite a good one. I think volume one is quite hard to find now. Um, I think it's been out of print for quite a long time. I would just add two other books that I think do a pretty good job of approaching learning to surf. The first is Surfing Illustrated by John Robinson. He's got a really nice uh, little sort of cartoony style and really goes through every aspect of, of learning how to surf, learning how to be in and around the water and the environment. And um, I really like it. I, I think it's a, a very well put together book. The other is Secrets to Progressive Surfing by Didier Pita, uh, who's French. The book was originally published in French, and there are a couple of slightly odd translations that, that they work. You, you understand what they're getting at, but as you read it, you can tell it's been translated. But I think he has a, a really nice approach to maybe some more advanced things. He doesn't cover the, the basics of learning to surf so much. It's mostly manoeuvres on the face, isn't it? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it approaches it quite in quite a nice way. It really does focus in quite a lot on the techniques involved in board control and then moves on to talk about those in regard to specific manoeuvres. Um, but like I say, above and beyond everything else, it is actually just quite a beautiful coffee table book because um, the quality of the photos is so high. In the internet world, I do love a big, heavy book with beautiful photographs in it. Yes, indeed. Okay, that is pretty much all we've got time for. Just our regular what to watch section. What have you got for us, Asher? So I watch a lot of surf edits, a lot of short ones. I you do. do. For, for listeners that don't know, Asher does a regular column on the Surf Simply magazine. Uh, if you go to surfsimplymagazine.com and you just kind of scroll down the page a little bit, it says our favorite web edits from the week. And those are Asher's favorite clips. I should change it to Asher's favorite <laughs> clips from the week. Yeah, I just I just look at quite a lot. So, um, yeah, I, I feel like I, I sometimes get to saturation point on surf edits and original content a lot just kind of blends the same and there was a edit by tyler warren this week 
and it was totally surfing based, very little narrative, and it was just beautiful. It was shot in you know, beautiful color images, uh, you know, really, really saturated, but not too much. He was riding you know, a dozen different surfboards. Uh, it had this kind of pumping velvet underground soundtrack, and I, I thought it was really, really good, and I, I recommend anybody checks it out. Um, the quality of the wave is probably really comparable to what a list one of you guys would find at your home break. It was San Onofre in California. So um, if anything, it kind of just shows sort of a unique way to approach average waves. So I think two thumbs up, Tyler Warren. Very cool. Carrie Ann? This was from a couple of years ago, actually, but it's kind of recirculated. It's Paige Elms. It's just a, a kind of two-minute clip of her getting barreled at Jaws which I've watched multiple times. It's in, it's in slow motion. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Paige Elms is one of my heroes. She's, yeah, she's pretty phenomenal. She was at uh, the uh, Women's Surf Film Festival in New York a couple of years ago uh, talking about her kind of recovery. They showed uh, a film about her and it was, it was pretty incredible to see. Very cool. Speaking of female role models... Uh, I think I mentioned it in the show earlier, but Vacation Island, which is a new movie, uh, well, it's an edit, it's like seven minutes long, about um, Steph Gilmore out in Hawaii last winter, shot by Morgan Mason. Morgan Mason's pretty much my favorite filmmaker, and Stephanie Gilmore's pretty much my favorite person to see in films. So, yeah, pretty much, pretty awesome. Pretty much any time there's content by Stephanie Gilmore or Morgan Mason, it's a must-watch. Yeah. So the nice Venn diagram overlap there. Actually, and, and Morgan wrote a nice little article for Surf Symphony magazine about uh, just about shooting the movie and some of the stuff that, that kind of went into putting it together. So if you go to Surf Symphony magazine, you can, you can see the movie and, and read a little bit of unique content from Morgan about it. Very good. I will, uh, I will put the links in at surfsymphony.com slash podcast. My choice, I was going to choose the doc because I thought that was really, really cool. There's also a making of the doc. There is a making of the doc. Um, but I'm actually going to go with Hurley did a piece with Kai Lenny and John John Florence with uh, John John sailing his boat and Kai Lenny pumping and, and, and pushing on his, uh, on his hydrofoil board trying to ride the open ocean swells and the, the, them having a, good, uh, a race um, between islands, which I just thought was really freaking cool. That is really um, cool. I really like silly, silly little challenges and adventures like that, and I thought that was a, a, a great piece, so I will... Put a link into that. I might even squeeze the uh, squeeze the doc in. I'm I'm pretty sure at this point everybody has seen that because that went very viral. Okay, um, that is all for this show. Hopefully we'll be back in uh, a much shorter period of time than we've been away this time. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Um, but for now, from all of us here, goodbye. Bye. Bye. Love you, bye. From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering Thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines. Every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization. Every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, 
hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager they are to kill one another. How fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.